Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have everybody with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, I I was thinking about the fact this morning that... um, I think many people across the country had believed that by November 4th, in fact, the morning of November 4th, we might all wake up with the anxieties we've been feeling, the tensions, the paranoia, all of the other emotions that were building in people over the 2020 election uh, might finally be soothed because we'd have a winner of the election. Um, Well, of course, Joe Biden has been declared the winner of the presidential race, but our anxieties, our paranoia, and our tensions seem to continue uh, to possess us as uh, the president of the United States continues to uh, refuse to accept the results of the election and is supported by Republicans across the country and, of course, many of them here in Georgia as well. I think it's worth noting that uh, the uh, president, uh, the presidential race here in Georgia continues to be give Joe Biden a margin of about 14,000 votes over Donald Trump. Nationally, uh, Biden has a 5 million plus popular vote total uh, beyond where President Trump stands right now. It is the largest margin uh, since uh, FDR defeated Herbert Hoover. Uh, in 1932. So the popular vote clearly was for Biden. The electoral vote uh, shows us how close a race can be because of the Electoral College. And our, our friend, Alan Abramowitz from Emory University, a frequent panelist on the show, set out an analysis yesterday of um, the Electoral College swings from 2008 through 2020. And I won't go into it in great depth, except to say his bottom line is that... Um, In 2008 and 2012, the Electoral College advantaged Democrats, uh, according to his data, by some seven or eight points. But 2016 and 2020, it has swung around so that it now advantages Republicans. And I think the next time Alan's on the show, we'll talk in more depth about uh, where he, uh, how he arrived at those figures. But I thought it was worth pointing out today that, uh, once again, the Electoral College uh, plays this overwhelming role in deciding who the next president will be. All right, let's get right to our panel today. Um, it's Kevin Riley Day. The editor of the AJC is with us on this Thursday. Kevin Riley, let me just start by offering my condolences. You couldn't wait for the Masters to get underway this morning, and it's been suspended for the day because of weather. I think we're still hopeful people will get get out there and play, uh, Bill. Uh, and I'm, you know, the TV is available, so. Um, uh, I just got to tell you, you mentioned all that stress about the elections. Uh, as your listeners know, I moved here from Ohio and was really enjoying being in a non-swing state. And now I'm back in one and the stress is back. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we're glad that you are uh, here in uh, Georgia, Kevin. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, we're also joined today by University of Georgia political science professor, Dr. Audrey Haynes. She not only teaches political science, but she oversees the Applied Politics program at the university, which trains students for careers in politics. Although, Audrey, I kind of every now and then find it hard to resist saying, given the light landscape right now, why do any of your students want to go into politics? Well, I'll, I'll answer that with two words, mo money, because now in Georgia, there is going to be a lot more activity and lots of people hopefully are going to be getting paid, especially all those media buyers out there. So, ah, Okay, good, good reasoning, good reasoning. Um, we're joined today, too, by Todd Ream. He's a Republican political consultant, and he is the uh, editor, founder, publisher of Georgia Pundit, which is a terrific daily newsletter that you can get at georgiapundit.com. He, uh, Todd really covers it all, all the landscape, national politics, state politics, and he drills down into local politics across the state, which so many people don't do uh, in their reporting. Uh, thanks for joining us, Todd. It's my pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, I did want to mention that uh, today in the newsletter, I went back and I looked at the headlines from this day in 2000. And back then, we had no idea who was elected president. Uh, and on that day, New Mexico was called for George W. Bush for the first time uh, in that post-election period. So I'm not surprised that we're still in up in the air a little bit. I, I'm glad you mentioned 2000 when Florida was in the balance, because I want to come back to it when we talk on, on the show today about Brad Raffensperger and his hand recount. Before we get to any of that, let's also welcome Melita Easters, the founder and director of the Georgia Win List, uh, which is uh, an organization that Melita founded to recruit and support uh, Democratic pro-choice women for mostly legislative races. Melita, how are you today? I am I'm fine, and um, we are celebrating the victories for some of our women, and thank you for having us. Yeah, I want to talk about that in a little while because uh, it what happened with legislative races in the state, you did have some victories. I also want to talk a little bit about why Democrats didn't perform quite as well or anywhere near as well as they expected to. We'll get that a little late, to that a little later in the show as well. Uh, Kevin, let's start with you. The um, Secretary of State really caught most people off guard yesterday. He had been resisting pressure for a couple of days from Republicans in the state here, led by Kelly Leffler uh, and David Perdue, who called for him to resign over the lack of transparency and potential fraud in the Georgia election, uh, he called what they said uh, uh, laughable was uh, one of the words he used to describe it. He uh, maintained that the election had been run with integrity across the state. He was proud of the way it had been handled. Uh, I don't think he's changed his position on that. But he did decide yesterday to do a hand recount of every ballot cast in this state, only in the presidential race. It will not apply to any down-ballot races at all. And I think, Kevin, a lot of people were surprised. That is an enormous undertaking. Yeah, I do think that's important to, for everybody to realize is just how enormous that will be. Never been done before. So there are a lot of questions out there right now of how fast can you get this done? What's it going to take? What's it, what's it going to cost? 
And, you know, I think if we if we really think about how Brad Raffensperger has handled so many things since he's had this job, probably, you know, maybe we shouldn't have been surprised that he would do this. He's a methodical um, guy. He's an engineer by training. Uh, he has tried over and over throughout all of this uh, election season to sort of be out there uh, and and be methodical and calm and engineering like in his explanation of things. And I think he his comments indicate he believes this recount audit. It's a little confusing. and I know we're going to get into what all those terms mean, but. I think he sees it as a chance to vindicate a lot of the systems he's put in place and the decisions he's made. And um, I just hope it ends up restoring great faith in the, in the election system, which we need in our state. Todd, it's, as I said, when you mentioned you went back to 2000, it is risky uh, doing First of all, the, the state of Georgia, as you have uh, told us uh, before the show, uh, does have a mechanism for doing recounts, formal recounts. They're done by machine. Uh, Ravensburger kind of cobbled together some regulations and rules to create this uh, hand recount, the authority to do this hand recount. And anybody who remembers the hanging Chad election of 2000 in Florida has got to wonder just what Raffensperger is getting us all into here. Todd? Well, and, and I think it was Audra who uh, mentioned in an email before the show that the, the, at some point the sample size for the audit that they were going to do anyway gets so large that it's probably easier and less expensive at some level to do that rather than to sample. Um, that, that's one issue. But the, the question is going to keep we're going to keep coming back to what Kevin mentioned, which is people's reliance on the integrity of elections. And I'm not sure if that comes back uh, within this generation. Um, it's going to be it's going to be very difficult. And the way things work now is with social media and Twitter, any discrepancies, any differences between one set of counts and another set of counts is going to get the uh, the, the folk, the conspiracy theorists, um, and all of my other friends in a tizzy about it. Um, and so I, I think we're probably down to arguing about the number of angels that can dance on the, the head of a pin for the next, you know, however long it is until January 6th when this, the United States House of Representatives starts looking at the Electoral College results. Yes, I would, um, I would agree with uh, what Todd has said. And, you know, in talking to students in particular who um, I actually have working on a project in this in my 101 class, you know, a lot of them really don't understand what's going on. And um, we really have to look at what's motivating some of this behavior. And I would argue that, you know, part of it is the short-term gain, this continuous cycle of short-term gain not really um, thinking about the long-term consequence of the behavior. Because when you do send out so many signals that something is wrong, that there's so much smoke out there that your elections are wrong and suggesting that there's a fire, very often in, uh, in these types of situations, there's not much of a fire at all. There might be a couple of instances of human error or mistaken, um, you know, writing the wrong uh, uh date or something on there. I've done it myself. Did I, did I ever tell you guys I committed a felony by, you know, writing down the wrong date because I, I was in my 50s and I forgot when my birthday was? 
you know, and my friend who is on the board of elections <laughs> called, Dr. Haynes, you committed a felony, you know, come fix this. So, you know, little things can happen. Um, but I do am very concerned about some of the activity going on in the state where people are pointing fingers and raising issues that really are not there. And it, it has a long-term cost for the state and it has a long-term cost for the country as a whole. I, I was curious, and I'm, I'm throwing this out in general because I haven't seen an answer. Mark Nisi uh, did an in-depth kind of look at what's involved in this process that we're going to go through for this morning's paper. And I know Stephen Fowler at GPB is staying on top of this. What I haven't heard yet is to the extent that uh, observers from both sides will be allowed to oversee the hand recount. And Melita, that, if, if that's in fact uh, going to be allowed, which you would imagine it, it, it would be, I, I assume, to talk about a transparent free election. This is where I talk about the hanging Chad question of 2000. Are, are Trump people and Biden people going to be allowed to look at individual ballots and say, oh, well, I don't think uh, this is filled up? Todd, do you have an answer to that? Let me give it to you and then Melita can weigh in. I was actually raising my hand to, to speak after Melita, um, but I do I do want to okay. say that when when you talk about observers on these elections, what we're what I think we're going to be finding out in the next couple of days is we're probably going to be looking at hundreds of Republican and Democrat lawyers from across the country. If you go yeah. to Hartfield yeah. now uh, and and just look for the guys in suits and shiny shoes, that's your lawyers. <laughs> well, yes, you, you, but until the lawyers get here, you have party volunteers and activists trying to round up enough people to show up in voter registration offices all over the state today. And that's a diversionary tactic from their efforts to get out the vote, from their efforts to register young people, from their efforts to actually make an impact on the January election. And I think that, you know, we, we talked about election integrity, but the editorial, which started on yesterday's front page, which Kevin's fine people said, basically said that, quote, reckless barely begins to touch on what Purdue and Loeffler have done without presenting reasons they have assaulted Georgia's ed- election system. So this is a scandal sort of brought up by the Republicans as a diversionary tactic from the election in front of them. And I I think that is part of what the damage that's being done here is. And then the other thing is, who's going to pay for all of the elections workers themselves who do the recount? Obviously, that's not something the Secretary of State thought through very clearly, because Mike Thurman brought this up in in several of the news accounts yesterday. It's a very expensive process. Just the recount in Chatham County for one house race with about 5,000 votes took four teams of four, five days. We're talking about a whole lot more people spread across 159 counties to count a whole lot more votes, you know, thousands of times as many votes. And so it's, it's going to be a costly, um, rest assured kind of uh, bargain. Kevin Riley, uh, Melita talks about the editorial that appeared in uh, uh, your paper 
yesterday, I believe, and uh, you actually pointed it at, at what we say. Uh, what I used to say, and I don't know if you even use this term anymore, but anything that appears above the uh, logo on the paper, you say, was on the roof. I don't know if you still use that term in uh, newspapering these days, but on the roof of yesterday's front page was a reference to, to uh, the uh, editorial. And the lead of it is, even in an election year where standards of fair play seem to plummet with each passing day, Monday's attack by Georgia's U.S. senators marked a new low. And Kevin, we've said on the show all week, that it is not partisan to talk about the way in which, unfortunately, Republicans are undermining the democratic process. That's an attack on democracy. It's not a question of whether Republicans believe one thing and Democrats another. And that's clearly the uh, point of view that led you to the editorial that your people uh, published in the paper. Yeah, I, I mean, a part of our job is to call out um, things that that need to be said, uh, no matter what side of the question, uh, the, the, the politics, the issue, uh, where just to say what needs to be said is the way that I, I like to put it uh, when I talk, I talk to our folks about it. Um, now, the thing I, I think we, I have questions about, and I'm really interested to see what, what our panel has to say on this stuff, in particular, Todd. I, it, you know, so there's a couple things going on. The first, of course, is Georgia, you might argue, is becoming sort of the center of the universe in disputing election results, because we know a little bit about what happened in 2018. Different circumstances, different reasons, but certainly that issue about counting all the votes and the results and questioning results uh, was also being talked about then. We have this. And then, of course, Lita referred to a strategy that this is, some would argue, a Republican strategy to simply do everything that can be done to win the Senate race, and will that work? So, um, Todd, I mean, you know, I always think you have great insights about strategy and what really works and how, in particular, a Republican has to look at a campaign. What do you what do you see here? OK, so I'm, I'm first going to start uh, with this, and this addresses both uh, Kevin's question and something Melita said about this being a diversionary tactic. Uh, Hanlon's razor, which is a, a it's an offshoot of Occam's razor, suggests a way of looking at this. And what I would say is that Republicans don't have the coordination amongst ourselves to pull off a diversionary tactic. It's far more likely that what appears to be chaos is actual chaos um, in, in this case. Um, to Kevin's point, there, there are two schools of thought. One is that there would have been a lot of pressure applied from the White House to get these kinds of statements. Um, I think that's I think that's it's likely there was some some pressure applied by the White House. I also think it is equally plausible that the people running uh, Senator Perdue's campaign and or Senator Leffler's campaign could have independently come up with the idea that this is the thing to do to get to the to the base of the Republican Party. It's a it's a legitimate strategy. Um, to the second thing that, that Kevin asked about, which is Georgia becoming the center of disputing election results, uh, I think Chip Lake really summed it up nicely yesterday when he questioned how Stacey Abrams got away for two years with questioning the results of an election that was not nearly as close as this one. 
without without her integrity being questioned and without her lack of proof of anything being questioned. Um, and and so I think there's plenty of blame to go around, but I but I do think the questioning of election results really started uh, in Georgia in in uh, the 2018 election. And what you're seeing now is a continuation of of that, uh, with both sides weaponizing any doubts or any discrepancies. Audrey, I think we can take Todd's point. Chip Lake, by the way, campaign manager for Doug Collins when he was running his for Senate, and a, a and formerly before he took that job, a, a frequent panelist on our show. Chip was uh, Audrey. There, there. It, it is certainly true that uh, Stacey Abrams never conceded the 2018 gubernatorial election to uh, Brian Kemp. I would take issue with him on one point. We did discuss it with some regularity over a period of weeks on this show that we wondered if she would, in fact, concede the race uh, and, and thought that it was probably in the best interest to do that. But there's one big difference here. Stacey Abrams did not control the apparatus of government and therefore, unlike Donald Trump, was not in a position where she had to cede control of the government to the person who beat her. And it strikes me that is a significant difference that the Chip Lakes of the world are kind of overlooking right now. (laughs) Well, and, you know, I will I will note that um, it certainly didn't feel like this. It didn't seem to have the level of. coordination or amplification, and it also was not something that was going on nationwide. Um, I would argue that there today is a far a greater ability to coordinate uh, talking points. And, you know, there is a centralized apparatus in the state. You have the state um, Republican Party, but you also have a, a massive propaganda campaign that is going on on a lot of social media areas with a lot of false information. I'll give you just one. There's one that says in Detroit, Michigan, that they saw 4,000 out-of-state ballots being brought in to, to be counted. And I posed that to my students, and I said, 4,000 out-of-state ballots. Do you believe that? And one of them raised their hand and said, uh, no, Dr. Haynes, because ballots from another state would have different people on them. You know, you can't count them. They're different ballots. But that just shows you how gullible people are. And and I would also argue with Stacey Abrams, they were much more focused on a number of very specific things that they felt were incorrect or potential problems as opposed to there's fraud going on. There There's thousands of votes that aren't, you know, I mean, it is a very different kind of of discussion, you know. So And, and I'm sure, and, and Todd may want to respond to that, but... You know, um, you can say someone didn't concede, but again, it, it was over and, she, and done pretty quickly in the end. Melita? Well, I, I think that the, the coordination of the national message is very different from back in Stacey Abrams' day. And, you know, when I think of fraud, I think about what the Atlanta Journal won the Pulitzer for in the 40s when the dead in Telfair County voted in alphabetical order for Herman Talmadge. You know, that's certifiable real fraud. And and what we have now is the creation of a myth of fraud. You know, with all the people who are watching the counting of ballots from both parties, 
throughout the first few days after the election, if there were real instances of fraud in Georgia with the November election, there would be fire instead of a lot of smoke. We would have specific allegations. Well, I, I want to uh, to go back to the point that I'm not sure at this point who, who made it, what, which is that uh, Stacey Abrams was not in control of the counting of ballots back in 2018. Donald Trump, uh, nor uh, David Perdue, nor Kelly Leffler is in charge of the counting of ballots in Georgia this year. That is a separate constitutional office that apparently they have lost the cell phone number to. Um, and, no, and no, no, so, no, no, Todd, I've got to interrupt you. Uh, Todd, I've got to interrupt you. That is not what I said. I said that Stacey Abrams, unlike President Trump, was not in charge of the government of the United States, and therefore Stacey Abrams, unlike Trump, did not have the power to turn over to the president-elect the apparatus of government. A very big difference. I wasn't talking about the election, election process. I, I think I think a, I think a more... A better point to make would be that it was Brian Kemp who was Secretary of State in 2018, literally the guy in charge of, of the votes, not the same party. And this idea that the Republican Party has any sort of uh, coordination is, is just – I would like for that to be true, but it's, it's just at odds with my experience uh, certainly over the last couple of years. And I know what Todd means when he says that is when he says he would like for it to be true. What he means is it would be great for the party from where he sits to be that well organized on a national level when they want to want to organize around something. I mean, I, I don't think he's in favor of probably some of what's going on at all. Um, I, I just think that it, we should all be wary of the refusal to accept election results, no matter the reason. I do think that 2018 has many differences, not, not the least of which is scale. It was a state versus sort of a national question. Um, but anytime uh, people uh, want to attack a politician, particularly wants to attack the systems with no proof, that's a dangerous place to be. Um, I, I wanted, Audrey, I'm going to give you a last word and then I got to get to a break. Well, let's just put it this way. Um, you know, making these allegations should not be a tactic, right, to win. It should be something that is in reality. And, you know, I wanted to go with Todd's point. I think there are a lot of places of coordination. It's not always done competently. And I will say this. I think there are a lot of Republicans who push back and don't really want to participate in that type of coordination, given the goal, right? So you may not have total cooperation across the group. I think there are quite a few Republicans waiting this out right now. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, a lot more to talk about. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
AJC editor Kevin Riley, Georgia Winlist's Melita Easters, UGA professor uh, Audrey Haynes, and uh, uh, Georgia pundits Todd Ream join me for the show today. Um, uh, Audrey, let me start with you, if I may, on this. Um, uh, we've been talking, obviously, about the recounting of ballots here in Georgia, about accusations of fraud across the country. And what what's fascinating about this, Audrey, is that increasingly Republicans nationally are saying, if not out loud, the way John Thune did the other day, uh, quietly, that it's crucial for Republicans to continue this campaign to undermine the election, despite the fact that they realize that Joe Biden will be the next president, because they have to keep the base fired up about what? The Georgia runoff election. So, I mean, we really are in the center of a lot of what's going on right now, although you can't discount President Trump's just plain unwillingness to acknowledge that he's lost uh, something. So with all that in mind, let's talk a little bit about the dynamic of these two runoff campaigns right now. And I'd like to start by, Audrey, I'll give you the chance to be the first to weigh in on it, but I want to start by reminding listeners that during the general election campaign, people on this show said over and over that because Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler were fighting to the death in that jungle election to emerge as the Republican candidate, Raphael Warnock was left untouched and allowed to introduce himself in a very positive way to voters across the state. Well, here comes the runoff. It's Warnock. It's Leffler. Leffler's people have now spent the first million dollars to put up two TV ads, one attacks Warnock uh, because of his past defense of Jeremiah Wright, who was a controversial preacher uh, that uh, Barack Obama's church, uh, he, he uh, oversaw the church Barack Obama went to and created great controversy back in that day. Uh, Warnock did defend Wright. And I want to play the audio from the other one, which uh, takes uh, their attack on Warnock in a different direction. The first thing we see are children standing in a classroom uh, doing the uh, uh, Pledge of Allegiance with a voiceover. Then we see scenes of what appear to be riots in the street. And you'll figure out pretty clearly what the other visuals are when you hear the audio now. This is America. But will it still be? If the radical left controls the Senate, Raphael Warnock called police thugs and gangsters, hosted a rally for communist dictator Fidel Castro, and praised Marxism in speeches and writings. Raphael Warnock will give the radicals total control. Saving the Senate is about saving America from that. I'm Kelly Leffler. I approve this message. Audrey? Saving the Senate. So one dichotomy, notice already, Raphael Warnock opened up his campaign with a very cute um, sort of preemptive ad that in the end we know he loves puppies. And then, you know, one of the things I would have hoped that Kelly Leffler would have done was to, you know, reintroduce herself in a very more positive way, get away from the Attila the Hun. And, and I saw her doing that on Twitter with all of the families first, a very focused um, campaign on families. But this is the fear versus hope. We've just seen this this cycle of, um, you know, campaign dichotomy, moving one base with fear. This is what the other guys are going to do. And this is that concept of negative partisanship that we talk about. 
you know, you don't have to love me. You don't have to think I'm great and I'm going to do great things. Those other guys are going to ruin our country, if not the world. So that's what mobilizes the base. There's some research that says that Republicans respond to that more than Democrats do. Melita? I agree with the learned professor that that this is a fear-based audience um, recruitment process of, of turning out the Republican base on fear and and it goes to the the religious groups who worship in a fashion that is based more on hellfire and damnation and fear-based religion than to those more hopeful um voters who tend to vote democratic we're starting to see a bunch of negative ads uh surprise surprise right um, and, and that's really kind of, I have a, a question for Todd. I mean, we know that Republicans, it, it, I mean, you could say in Georgia, Republicans always win runoffs. And, uh, and um, I know that lately when I've asked Democrats and, and strategists about that, they've bristled a little bit that this, this is going to be different. Um, Todd, I mean, what's your point of view? I mean, should Republicans be secure and what what would Democrats have to do to win a runoff? Todd, have you muted? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll come back to Kevin's uh, question in just a second. I do want to say this. I've seen that Warnock ad for days, every day during Jeopardy, uh, during every commercial ad, every commercial <laughs> segment, you see that ad, and there's another Warnock ad. They're running two ads in every segment. Uh, but the puppy ad, first of all, I want to take credit for bringing the dog in as a political symbol in Georgia politics um, and, and realizing that people who know that you like dogs will think you're a better person than, than you may or may not be. But that Raphael Warnock ad with the, with the, uh, with the dogs, it starts and ends cute, but in the middle of it is every bit as negative and cutting an ad um, about Kelly Leffler as anything that she's running. It just has a different tone. And he's clearly trying to tap into the fear of people who think that they may lose their health care insurance if, uh, if Obamacare is done away with or diminished in, in some fashion. So that, that using fear as a motivating factor is, is not unique to Republicans. We are sometimes better at it, sometimes worse at it, um, but we get the majority of the blame. To Kevin's question, it was true through most of the 90s, through most of probably up through about 2016 or 2018, where Republicans, especially in areas like uh, Fulton County, um, areas where the Democrats would normally have an advantage, we could count on bringing our voters out for special elections, runoff elections, any time that was not normal voting time. I don't think that's true anymore. I think that the voter turnout uh, apparatus that was uh, created and maintained by uh, the Stacey Abrams organizations has given the Democrats probably an advantage in runoff elections because they just have a much more sophisticated operation for for identifying turning out and, uh, and following up with their voters. And it's not just that they're better at that, it's that they're also better at getting their voters to go all the way down the ballot 
because you've got to remember there's several other uh, runoffs in addition to the federal ones. You've got the Public Service Commission runoff. Um, I've run Public Service Commission runoffs, and I can't imagine what it's like doing that in the atmosphere of two U.S. Senate races. And you've also got a state Senate That's... district here in Atlanta and the district attorney's race. No, those are uh, we, 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 we have, it is true that Raffensperger has moved uh, those December 1st runoffs to January 5th, probably under his emergency powers, which is really smart. But I think he's only moved the PSC race, uh, the 5th District runoff, yeah. which will put someone in this Congress for about a month taking John Lewis's seat before, uh, b- before the new Congress uh, comes into session. That will be on the December 1st ballot. But uh, Melita, here's the thing. There's no question that the Republican ads uh, trade on fear. But that does not mean necessarily, in the same way that if Raphael Warnock uh, 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 says that people are going to lose their health care, causes them to be afraid of what will happen if Republicans take control, and of course they don't have a plan and they have tried to undermine Obamacare, nevertheless, there are going to be things that Raphael Warnock absolutely did say during his many years as a pastor uh, in an activist church uh, that will be true about him. The question is the context in which you frame it. One example, by the way, uh, the Fidel Castro visit to the church in Baltimore, Raphael Warnock was like an assistant new member of that church. He had been there. He had absolutely nothing to do. He he didn't oversee the church. He wasn't the pastor. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be attacks on him that are legitimate that voters may want to look at. It's just the framing. It's the pictures of violence in the street that really raise questions, I think. Well, I agree with you, but let's clarify one thing, Bill. The Senate District 39 race, the DA race in Clark County were not moved to January. They are still on December 1st. And the Secretary of State created a great deal of confusion with his imprecise wording yesterday. Now, you're absolutely correct in that um, many of the things that that Raphael Warnock has said as a reverend from the pulpit can be taken out of context and used against him. But I also think people have enough sense to try and put the context around that. And there's a very real difference between comparing a policy such as that on health care based on the record of what the, the people in office and the party have tried to do versus trying to create fear about riots or creating fear about violence that, I mean, most of the protests over this past summer were very peaceful. And, and so using that footage to create fear is very different from a real comparison of policy. All right. I, 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 I know Todd disagrees with that. Um, give a real quick response, Todd, because I want to move on. I, I don't know who else here lives in Atlanta, but I remember riots in the streets in Atlanta this year. I've seen footage of police vehicles on fire this year in the city of Atlanta. And to say that 
for some, that somehow the idea of, of riots and mass civil disobedience is a figment of, of Republicans is uh, it, just to deny reality. It's to deny what, what we see outside our windows here in the city of Atlanta. All right, Kevin, I want to put all this in a larger context for a minute, and then we got to get to a break. So uh, the problem we're now facing uh, with attack ads, uh, with charges and countercharges, with the way media is uh, uh, divided along partisan lines is the truth ends up just <laughs> out to lunch. Uh, Kevin, I, for instance, was watching the news from the planet Venus this morning, uh, Fox and Friends. Uh, uh, they had a soundbite from Newt Gingrich, who last night uh, said on Fox, 70% of the American people don't trust the results of the, that this was an honest election. Uh, that's not true. Uh, it is true that 70% or more of Republicans have been convinced by their own leaders that the election may not have been run with integrity. Uh, I also, but not the American people. That's a very different matter. Uh, I also heard this morning on Fox and Friends they uh, the statement by the anchors that uh, Democrats were starting to uh, encourage people to c- uh, come in from out of state uh, to establish residency to vote for Democrats in the election. And um, I don't doubt there are going to be Democrats coming into the state to work on behalf of their candidates. I don't think I've seen any proof that we're going to see any any re, any substantial number of people moving uh, their residences just to vote on January fifth. I so I worry about truth in all of this, uh, Kevin. Well, I mean, I, I do think that uh, a truth is one of the first victims of a political <laughs> campaign, right? And uh, I, I do think it it's it challenges all of us as citizens to seek sources of information that are um, reliable and to, you know, ask ourselves, um, everyone likes to talk about other people being in an echo chamber or a bubble. And I think we all have to ask ourselves if we're, if we ourselves are doing that. Um, I kind of, um, I've been telling people this, I mean, obvious self-interest here is put down your Facebook feed and read a newspaper or, or read a, a reliable source of information um, because if your news diet is only coming to you through social media, it's sort of like if you were eating uh, at McDonald's every day. You know, don't do that to yourself. It's not good for you. All right. Uh, that's it. By the way, I, I go back and forth. So I'm on Fox and Friends in the morning. I go to Morning Joe. I go to CNN. And I do that throughout the day. And I will say that there are certainly things that I hear on what are allegedly the more liberal uh, cable networks, uh, uh, things that I, I feel uncomfortable about as well. So I don't want to create the impression that I think it's only Fox and Friends, although they are part of a larger campaign, I think, to discredit this election right now. All right, we're going to come back in a minute with uh, the remainder of our show, but right now let's take a break on Political Rewind. Quick program note, if you are a fan of NPR's election coverage or their political coverage in general, then uh, you may want tonight at 7, uh, our Virginia Prescott will be uh, overseeing a conversation with NPR's Sarah McCammon and Tamara Keith about the election. It'll be on uh, the gpb.org community 
uh, page, or you can look at it at Facebook Live. It ought to be terrific. I mean, Sarah McCammon is one of our own. She was here at GPB running our Savannah Bureau when NPR tapped her to go off and cover the national election back in 2016. And Tamara Keith really knows her stuff as well. Todd, very quickly, uh, I want to uh, ask you, it, and Senate race number one, we're not going to have a chance to talk much about it, but uh, this 90-plus thousand vote lead that David Perdue had uh, in that race over John Ossoff, how hard will it be, it, from your point of view, for the Democrats to overcome that? Or, in fact, do we believe in the, old, the conventional wisdom that the leader in a race like that has gotten a ceiling on his votes, and it's the person who can finish second who has the room to grow? I, I think there's a lot of uh, difficulty ahead for the Purdue campaign. I think there's. A, I, I think this is just an extraordinarily difficult campaign uh, for anybody. When when I've done runoffs in December before, it is so hard to get anybody's attention. Um, but they're going to have the exact opposite problem, which is so much attention, uh, so much stuff that's going on outside their control. Um, that it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for David Perdue to drive his own campaign at times because there's going to be so much third-party spending. If you look at the seventh district uh, up in Gwinnett County, which just flipped, much more of the advertising that I saw was driven by third parties than by the candidates. Um, yep. And you're going to have that dynamic, so that David Perdue is not really going to be as in charge of his own messaging as he is used to, and that's going to create challenges for him. It's going to create challenges for uh, John Ossoff as well, in that I, I suspect there will be Democratic third parties doing the same. We'll have a lot more time to talk about Senate race number one in the days ahead. But, Melita, before we have to finish the show today, I do want to take a minute to talk about the Georgia win list. You did win some of your legislative races, and I know you're proud of that. But while you talk about that, also talk about what the heck happened to Democratic hopes that they might come close, if not overtake the Republicans in controlling the Georgia House. Happy to address that, Bill. First off, Georgia was one of the very few, if not the only state in the nation, where so many Democratic seats flipped to Republican. Also, Georgia is only one of three states in the nation where Democratic women flipped Republican congressional seats. I think the reason more women were not able to flip seats, there are two. Primarily, COVID prevented safe campaigning door-to-door and I think that was a great disadvantage to the Democratic women who chose to um, practice safe protocols for themselves and their volunteers. Because one of the things that really helps women campaigning is the way they can relate to the people they meet on the campaign trail. The other thing I think is that we flipped so many seats in 2018 that the Republican leadership knew what to expect and geared up and campaigned harder. The 2018 flips, 10 by women, really caught Republican leadership by surprise. They were not caught by surprise this time. The speaker got in his plane and hopscotched around the state to shore up support for his incumbents. And so I'm very proud of the flips we were able to do. 
And, and I believe that in a non-COVID environment and in a less gerrymandered state, there might have been more of them. But the Republicans have now reached the limit of the demographics which support their continued control. It's going to be a battle royal with some of the state, with some of the districts based on the population growth to keep all of the Republicans in power. And I, I would follow up that I think that Republicans know that because the the, the um, seats that they did flip, they had more success with people of color, veterans, and women running. A lot of those races that um, switched back from the 2018 uh, campaign were won by Republicans who fit those demographic characteristics and could appeal to them and perhaps broaden the base. I would say that we see some things changing in the Republican Party, and, and Fox News is sort of an example of that, because OAN, you said you're watching Fox, Bill. OAN is running um, ads basically saying, Fox Fox viewers, come over to us, because Fox has abandoned Trump right now. Um, and I think we also see people within the Republican Party, again, as I mentioned, trying to wait this out. The people who are closest and most reliant on the Trump base are the stakeholders that are generating a lot of the activity that we're seeing. Uh, the ones who aren't, they just want to get back to governing. Todd, Republicans in the legislative races really uh, had had a big, big financial advantage over Democrats in this contest, too, and that had to play in a major role. There, there was a financial advantage, but um, I, I think Melita made a good point that uh, Speaker Ralston was, was not surprised. He was not caught off guard this time. Um, and I think uh, not only did did they have a an advantage in – uh, funds, but they also had a they did they did a good job of picking the issues in some of these districts. Um, if you look at some of the the more ideologically uh, close districts, uh, you'll you'll see that Republicans were talking a lot more about uh, the work done on more maternal mortality, which is not tradition which would not traditionally have been considered a Republican issue. Uh, they talked about the hate crimes bill a lot and uh, sex trafficking and issues that and, and they stuck away from the narrow casting issues that tend to dominate uh, among the Republican right wing and, and tried to cast a, a wider net. Um, so I, I think it's I think Kevin, it's that Kevin, plus the money. Kevin, one quick point uh, that I'd like you to expand on. It's interesting that what did not sway voters uh, that I think people like Melita at Hope would was the uh, f- fact that the legislature passed a law that all but outlaws abortion in the state. That did not, in fact, uh, seem to drive people to turn out Republican incumbents. Yeah, it, I mean, I think our own polling showed that there were certain issues that voters were really paying attention to, and they weren't always the issues that either Democrats or Republicans hoped they would. Uh, how does it feel that you're going to be in the political uni- center of the political media universe uh, like we are, uh, Kevin? Greg Bluestein said there were about 40 uh, uh, press people that turned out for the Marco Rubio event in Marietta yesterday. We're in the middle of it, Kevin. It's going to be a wild ride, Bill, but there is one thing. Uh, we had a reference to whether Trump and the ONN Fox thing, and there's talk of him joining that network or replacing yeah. Rush Limbaugh. I want to be clear, there's no talk of him replacing you. 
right. Kevin Riley, uh, Audrey Haynes, Belita Easters, Todd Reem, thank you for a terrific conversation today. We're back. Oh, tomorrow, Dr. Carlos Del Rio's coming on. So is Sandra Ford, the public health director in DeKalb County. We're going to talk about COVID, what Joe Biden plans to do, and what's going on with this vaccine. Until then, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask. And please go get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.